if you're not from West Virginia and you don't follow federal government stuff, especially the Senate, very closely, you've probably not heard of Joe Manchin. But you should know something about him because he's going to prove to be very important over the next two years. Stick around and hear why. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'll Have to Think About That, a podcast in which we talk about history worth knowing, questions worth asking, and ideas worth considering, all in response to the incomplete education that so many of us have. Thanks again for listening. You know, every time a new president comes into office, that president, and I talked about this in a previous episode, is responsible for nominating a lot of people. Uh, to various federal positions, you know, the heads of all the departments of dot, dot, dot. Uh, There are a number of uh, advisors to the president, heads of independent agencies. There are hundreds of ones that might resonate with you, and I believe there are like well over a thousand. There's so many people that the president is solely responsible for nominating and then the Senate goes ahead and, and, uh, and vets them and then votes up or down to confirm them. And so Joe Biden is going through that right now. little side note, by the way, it is customary that when a president is reelected for a second term, it's typical that most cabinet members will tender their resignation. They will write a resignation letter in order to give the president an option to gracefully get rid of them if the president wants to go in a new direction for their second term, because presidents in second terms typically behave very differently than those in first terms because they they don't have to, and they can't run for re-election. That's just a side note. Point is, Biden right now is sitting in the, the position that, that every new president is in their, their first couple of months of trying to put people that are their people in charge of all these different organs of the federal government in order to enact policy, to, uh, to change things internally in the executive branch, to to fit that president's governing philosophy and campaign promises. It is an incredibly difficult piece of work. And it's also, it's part of, and it reflects this system of checks and balances that, um, that are so important to preventing too much power from being concentrated in any one set of hands or one branch. So here we have an example of the executive, the executive of the executive branch trying to staff key positions throughout the executive branch, and he has to turn to the Senate, whose members were originally uh, created and elected to represent the states as a whole, to determine whether or not these people get those jobs. By the way, this also applies to ambassadors. So Joe Biden has sent a whole bunch of names to the Senate to, uh, to be studied and confirmed, and some of them have been confirmed, like we have a new U.N. Uh, ambassador, uh, the Secretary of Defense, new Secretary of Defense has been confirmed. A number of others have, but as is typically the case, there are those that are proving to be difficult. And I, I have no doubt that there will be some nominees, maybe even some that I'll talk about today, that will not be voted on or will be voted down. And not voted on could mean that the person withdraws their nomination. Uh, A lot of times you'll have 
if the president thinks that this person's going to go down in flames, instead of having them go down in flames and then having to deal with the public political fallout of a nominee being voted down, oftentimes the uh, the nominee, him or herself, will issue some, frankly, it usually comes across as a ham-handed statement like, oh, I've decided that it's better for the country and my family and my dog that I withdraw my nomination. And, and in reality, what that is, is the president turning to that person behind closed doors and saying, you're going to go down in flames and I don't want to look stupid when it happens, so why don't you issue a ham-handed, I want to go hang out with my dog on a lake kind of statement. Anyway, so there's context around this. <clears throat> that's the kind of thing that's happening right now. And there are two, well, and a few others actually, Biden nominees who look to be facing serious problems in their, um, their nomination or their confirmation process because of one senator. The senator is Democrat. Oh, my goodness. Democrat Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Now, remember, right now, there are 50 Democrats in the Senate, and there are 50 Republicans, <clears throat> which means that if both caucuses are able to retain all their members for a vote, the Democrats would have 50 people, then Kamala Harris, vice president, would then step in as president of the Senate. Vice president, remember, only gets to serve in that capacity if there is a tie. And in this case, it would be the cleanest and most perfect of ties, a 50-50. Kamala Harris would come down to uh, the Senate chamber and cast the tie-breaking vote. Here's the problem for the Democrats, though. If one Democrat jumps ship, there is no 50-50 tie. And if all the Republicans stick together, and this applies to any vote, if all the Republicans stick together and they get even one Democrat, then it's 51 to 49. Kamala Harris does not get to put on her president of the Senate hat and break the tie because there is no tie. Now, the same goes for the Republicans in that all the Democrats need to do is bleed off one Republican, one moderate Republican, um, and, uh, and they have 51 to 49. And then there's not even an issue of Harris showing up and, and having to vote. But back to Joe Manchin. Uh, Joe Manchin, as I said, is the Democratic senator, one of the two um, Democrat senators from West Virginia. And Joe Manchin is something of... Um, uh, I won't say a dying breed, but he's something of a, a rarity in the Senate right now in that he is, a, he is a moderate Democrat with some very traditional, and even in some ways, if we were to, to strip away political party labels, there are some things about him that we might peg as being clearly conservative. And what you have to remember, if you don't follow this stuff is that Democrat and Republican, their parties, where they stand on various issues is going to drift over the decades, okay? I mean, it was only during Obama's run for office in 2008 when he said, quote, that abortions, abortions should be safe, legal, and rare, well, the Democratic Party's stance on abortions are, is very different now. There should be unfettered access to abortions in it. They should be federally funded. That's not where Obama stood as a candidate in 2008. It was Bill Clinton after the 1994 congressional elections who declared the era of big government is over. That's a Democrat saying big government is over. 
Now, that was a political statement. There's a whole bunch surrounding that. But my point here is that you can't say Democrat always equals these positions on these issues, and it's immutable, and ditto for Republicans. And if you look back over the decades, you definitely see variance. Um, and it's not like they both shift in the same way. It, it, they, they just vary. Um, and then beyond that, just because someone is a Democrat does not mean they're the same. There's not just one flavor of Democrat. You know, I've, I've said this plenty of times that Nancy Pelosi, who's the Speaker of the House of Representatives and a Democrat from the San Francisco area, um, would probably not be electable in most Democratic congressional districts outside of the coasts. I mean, there are Democrats in the House of Representatives from Texas who are far more conservative than a lot of coastal and big city Democrats. There are Republicans who are more socially and fiscally liberal than others. So both parties are what we call big tent parties. So you, you have to remember that there's a lot of variety out there in terms of ideas. And so back to Joe Manchin. He was elected in 1982 to the West Virginia legislature. And 18 years later in 2000, <clears throat> he won a statewide office as secretary of state there. He was elected governor there in 2004 and 2008 and, and you know, by pretty wide margins. Now, when he was governor in 2010, Senator Robert Byrd, who had served in the Senate for West Virginia since, I think, like the 13th century or something. He'd been in the, in the Senate for, for decades, died. Now, if you remember, it is the job of the governor to appoint new senators if, a, if, the, if an existing senator can't serve out their term. Either they, they quit, they re, whatever, uh, or they die. It's the governor's job to appoint the, uh, a temporary replacement for that person. And uh, remember, that's because the role of the Senate, even though they're elected popularly now, that is by the whole state, the role of a senator is to represent the state as a whole. So the idea is that the governor sees the state as a whole, so that governor then chooses a person. But what happens is, depending on how many years are left in the departed senator's term, um, and when the next election is coming up, the next congressional election, which you know is every even-numbered year— when a governor appoints a, a replacement senator, that replacement senator serves temporarily until the end, rather until the next regularly scheduled uh, congressional election. And so Manchin appointed a, a temper when he, as he was governor, as was his power and responsibility, he appointed someone to fill out that term and then shortly thereafter announced that he himself would run um, in that uh, the 2010 congressional election, and uh, he actually could have appointed himself. There's been some question as to whether that's kosher or whether people would like it, but as governor, he can appoint anybody he wants, but he didn't. He appointed somebody else who agreed to be a placeholder until the election. Manchin elected, or said, I'm going to run for the seat. So he runs for the seat himself, and he wins resoundingly in, um, in 2010. He then ran again in 2012 because that's when that seat's uh, term came up regardless of who was in it, and he won by a, by a healthy margin then, um, and he was reelected in 2018. Remember, those Senate terms are six years, and he won by a closer margin in 2018. But so my, my point for giving this little background of Joe Manchin, West Virginia, his political history, is that the guy has been um, 
in statewide office for or state elected office for now over 20 years, and he's been a fixture in West Virginia politics for almost 40 years. He is a supporter of coal. That's not very democratic nowadays. Uh, he is a generally a, a supporter of the Second Amendment. He is avowedly pro-life, which is actually against, it's counter to the, the Democrats, um, the Democratic Party's platform, which is avowedly pro-choice. So there are lots of places where Joe Manchin clearly cleaves away from what is promoted to be the mainstream Democratic Party. Like if you just watch the news, you think that the Democratic Party is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, AOC and Bernie Sanders and Nancy Pelosi, which is this really socially leftward uh, wing that really wants to redefine the Democratic Party as being progressive in the you know early 21st century sense, socially and like really, really fiscally uh, loose to achieve all their great uh, you know social programs, things like that. Joe Manchin is like the odd man out in that, but again, big tent party. So what's fascinating right now is that Manchin's got a, he has a number of things going for him. One, there's a 50-50 split in the Senate. Two, he's been in the Senate for over a decade, and so he's building up seniority. And three, it's back to that 50-50 split, and this is, a, this is an interesting outcome or, or state of affairs because of how seemingly, and I think to an extent, actually hyper-partisan our politics have become. There are, there are Democrats in the Senate who are, who are way more liberal than your average American. And there are Republicans in the Senate who are way more conservative than your average American. It's more, uh, the, the difference, I think the gulf between the two is much greater in the House because you tend to have rougher, more extreme edges in the House than in the Senate because, remember, the Houses, those people are elected within a single district, which is a small, which can be a far more cohesive uh, and uh, like unified population, whereas when you spread a vote out to a whole state, you, you tend to blunt the extreme edges. Um, but, but Manchin is this anomaly in that he is, he is generally moderate, and he is sitting there right in the middle, you could say ideologically or you know, politically, he's right in the middle between the extremes of Republicans and Democrats. And he goes ahead and announces that he is not going to vote in support of Joe Biden's uh, nominee for the Office of Management and Budget. He said he's not going to vote for this person because of her troubling history of several thousand inflammatory uh, and nasty tweets that she deleted late last year. These were things calling you know, Republicans all kinds of nasty names and um, demonstrating what seems to be a uh, the, the ugly hyperpartisanship that social media tends to exacerbate and, and put under a spotlight. Uh, she demonstrated a lot of that over the years in various positions that, that she was in. And a lot of times, you know, and this, we're going to see this more and more over the years, as it becomes possible for an individual to be nominated to some high office, you're going to watch this scramble and dance to get rid of anything controversial from their social media past. Like, look, if you are Gen X, you are probably really happy 
that if there are any photographs of dumb stuff you did in high school or college, you have the one or two copies and you have the negatives. You might have even lost them. Like those of us from that age group, I, I am I am so pleased that there was no social media, you know, 30 years ago. Uh, uh, it's going to be really fascinating in about 20 to 30 years when all candidates running for president grew up with Facebook and there's no way to hide from the stupid stuff you said when you were 14 and you posted. Anyway, she went and deleted a ton of stuff that really, I think, I agree, it does call into question her her willingness, ability, and temperament to work across the board. If you don't know, by the way, what the Office of Management and Budget is, it is, uh, it's supposed to be generally nonpartisan, and it is supposed to inform the president about budgetary issues like deficits and debt and where we need to spend money and where we don't need to spend money. And OMB serves within the uh, executive branch as kind of the centralizing organ to enact, to, to develop and enact and oversee the budget every year. That's really important. And the interesting thing is that the, the director of the OMB and the person, the people that this individual would put in positions within OMB needs to be able to work with Republicans and Democrats. And when you have someone who spent the last couple of years lobbying you know, cheap verbal bombs and, uh, uh, and undercutting the validity of others' positions because she doesn't agree with them, I think Joe Manchin's got a point. So suddenly Joe Manchin's really powerful in regards to Biden's attempt to get his person in charge of OMB. And by the way, her uh, the subcommittee that was uh, going over her nomination was going to vote, rather the committees were going to vote on, uh, on her nomination uh, today, and that vote was tabled, um, which tells me that the Democrats know that her nomination is, is, in, uh, is in serious jeopardy. And so pay attention in the next couple of days if all of a sudden she says, oh, for the better of the country and because I like my dog and I like walks in the woods, I'm going to withdraw my nomination. Manchin also has mentioned either directly or indirectly firm or softer opposition or questions with a couple of other Biden nominees. And so we'll see. I, like I said, I think it's, it's really fascinating here that, you know, in our system and we, we – we have this in our voting. We have this within our political institutions. We have majority rule, but we have protection of the minority. And in some cases, the minority or even the one, depending on how voting blocks are apportioned, how they're split, you know, and that split, by the way, is there's no one determines that split but us. Like we Americans elected those people who went to the Senate, you know. Um, it's not like there's some kingmaker who, who decided this. We elected these people, so we created that split. And because of that split and because of the nature of it right now, it happens to be that a moderate Democrat um, who has not been afraid to vote across the lines, he actually voted in favor of um, Trump policies by just over 50. He voted for like 50-something percent of Trump-pushed Trump policies during Trump's first two years and a little over a third of those in the second two years of Trump's single term. So Manchin is a guy who 
you you can't peg him down just by party identity and say this is how he's going to vote. But because of the split, he has a tremendous amount of power. If this guy comes out and says, I'm not going to vote for this person, or I think we should think more about this, that is a huge signal to the Biden White House that you're going to need to deal or you're going to need to pick somebody else because that is just the nature of it. Again, if he, uh, if one Democrat jumps ship and all the Republicans stay together, and by the way, a couple of the moderate Republicans, the leftward fringe of the Republican caucus in the, um, in the Senate, have already announced that they don't support this OMB person or nominee either. Um, there may be one or two other possible Republicans who would who would jump ship and vote in favor of, but they they've been kind of wobbly too. So again, at this point, you know, both Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, being the two heads of the respective caucuses in the Senate, both of them have a really tough job and really important job for from their perspective of keeping their vote to, together, keeping those fifty votes together. You lose one, and Kamala Harris doesn't show up, and you lose the vote. So pay attention to Joe Manchin. Um, my sense, uh, what, I've, what I know about the guy and what I've seen him do and what I've seen him say, and I think it's really important, you don't just take what a politician says. You take what the politician says over time, and then you watch what they do over time. And then you get a sense of like, is this person just drifting in the political winds? Is this person principled? Is, you know, what kind of a person is this? My sense based on that of Joe Manchin is that the guy does have core principles, things he believes are right, good, and, and, and the way things should be, and he's going to vote accordingly, and he's elected by the people of West Virginia. And as long as the people of West Virginia like what he's doing, screw the rest of the Democratic Party. You know, think about that. The Democratic Party, the other 49 Democrat senators, they don't elect him. People of West Virginia do. You might be wondering by this point, like, why isn't Joe Manchin a Republican? Well, there are plenty of things that Joe Manchin is a, a clearly a traditional Democrat on. Like, he's a big supporter of the um, Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, and he has encouraged West Virginians to, who, who could benefit from it or perceived to benefit from it, he's encouraged them to sign up for it. He is in favor of um, government spending on health care. So there are definitely some, call them big or bigger government programs that Joe Manchin is totally in support of. Like I, I kind of look at, at Joe Manchin as more like a um, like an LBJ Great Society Democrat, not like a socially liberal Democrat. I think that might be a good description of him. He's not afraid of the federal government stepping in to spend big money to do good, okay, from his perspective. But he's not, you know, he's... He's, he's, not, he's not AOC. I mean, obviously, she's in the House. He's sure as heck not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so pay attention. Pay attention to, um, to Joe Manchin. Pay attention to that handful of moderate Democrats. He is the most, um, I think he's the most prominent of them because we've seen over the last decade him jumping ship based on his principles. Um, so he shouldn't be surprising. And keep an eye, too, on those moderate Republicans. Uh, Liz Murkowski uh, and Mitt Romney actually are probably the two most prominent that you should pay attention to. Um, now, in closing here, I have, I have a personal comment, actually, about one of Biden's nominees, the gentleman that he has nominated for the um, Secretary of Health and Human Services. 
which uh, potentially could have you know an important role in COVID uh, management, vaccination management, things like that, and um, federal housing programs. He's a gentleman named Javier Becara. He is from California. He's been California's Secretary of State for a while, and um, he's been his his suitability for the job has been called into question both in terms of experience. He has zero experience working in anything related to healthcare, and he has zero experience related to anything with like housing and management of those kinds of things. And also politically because of, sadly, what seems to be the typical litany of, of nasty uh, remarks about anyone who disagrees with him. You know, he's a, he's a California Democrat. He doesn't have to watch his words. You know, he doesn't have to play nice with Republicans because the Democrats have buried Republicans. They, they outnumber Republican um, uh, voters by like almost two to one by registration in the state. So Javier Bercara hasn't had to like even pretend to be nonpartisan or bipartisan. Um, in fact, his, his stock and trade has been being partisan. And here's where the personal piece came in. Um, I listened, I got to hear him speak. He was the keynote speaker at a, um, at an event that I attended several years ago in California. And I got to say that um, I, was, I was disturbed and I was disappointed in his message and his rhetoric. Uh, basically, he blamed everything. He had a list. He blamed everything wrong with America on racism. Everything, everything wrong in this country is because of racism. It's because white people are racist. That was his message. Now, I am distilling this down. I'm sure that he would, he would argue with me over it and find some way to say, no, I'm, I'm not saying that while still saying that. But that was the message I walked away with. Um, and that if you, and essentially if you don't agree with him, it's because you're a racist. And I have a real problem with that overly simplistic, like, cudgel of an argument that says, if you disagree with me about anything, you're a racist. And if you disagree with me that you're a racist, it's only because you're a racist. There's no way that you can have a conversation or a discussion with someone that believes such a wacko idea, you know? Um, and that was, that was the message I came away from his speech with. And um, frankly, I don't think a guy like that uh, ought to be in any federal position. Um, there are problems that exist in this country um, on, a, on a social level and definitely on an individual level that are rooted in racism. That's, that's not an argument. But, uh, but the notion that everything is traceable to this one evil, and this one evil only comes from one group of people, which, by the way, treats all people of a certain ethnicity in the same manner. I thought that was racism itself. But, um, but I don't think anyone, uh, sadly, I, I personally, I don't think that anyone like, with, frankly, that... That flimsy and vindictive excuse for reasoning deserves to be in a federal position. Um, so we'll see if he gets, uh, he gets the nod. Anyway, pay attention to Joe Manchin. Pay attention to Senate moderates. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. You can leave feedback at my show site, which is thinkaboutthat.podbean.com. You can also subscribe there. I'd appreciate that. And share this out to anyone you think would be interested in listening. Have a great day.